Welcome members, visitors, and friends. So happy to have you join us for this podcast and the church said, where we discuss issues and insights on how the body and the members can interact in ways that promote spiritual, mental, emotional, and relational well-being. I am Dr. Monique Smith-Gadson, your host for this podcast. I am also a licensed clinician. However, this podcast is not intended to serve as therapy. We encourage you to engage in your own personal counseling. So come on in because the doors are open and take a seat on any pew you choose. We hope your time here will leave you declaring a hearty and resounding amen. Well, hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us on today. And today, um, I'll be talking a bit more about psychological abuse. And what does it mean for the church to be a refuge, specifically as it relates to psychological abuse? And you all know, if you've been following me or listening, um, this is what I've been talking about for quite some time now. And again, just have not yet quite felt the release to move away from this particular topic. So last week, I mentioned the, about the church being an educational refuge from psychological abuse. And, uh, you know, I understand that every church is not resourced with a therapist or staff, or they may not even be in partnership with an agency or even a private practice. I understand that. However, um, there is community information. There is a community counseling agency. There is information that can be collected. It can be distributed within the church building, like pamphlets can be left in key areas. Um, information for hotline numbers can be found or accessed on the church's website. And so there are some things that we can do to serve as an educational refuge for the church, the church to be able to serve as this educational refuge. So I just wanted to name a few of those um, ideas and suggestions there so that we can start just making steps toward what does it look like for the church to be an educational refuge? So what I wanted to review is this verse again, Psalm 46, one, which reads, God is our refuge and strength, a helper who is always found in times of trouble. And asking that question again, what does it mean for the church to be a refuge, to be this source of strength? And in the context of our conversation, again, to those who are victims of psychological abuse, I just wanted to review that refuge, that word in the Hebrew conveys hope, a place of refuge, shelter, trust being defined as a refuge or a shelter from rain or storm, from danger or falsehood. So how can the church be a refuge? Or even what does it mean for the church to be a refuge? This place of hope for victims of psychological abuse. Well, I believe that the church can be a place of hope when it validates a victim's experience by saying, yes, this person is abusing you. 
Now, remember some of those statistics that I gave you from Avery Neal in her article, Identifying a Psychological Abuse is what I kind of built the episode, the most the, the previous episode around. The three um, statistics that I kind of focused in on last week, psychological abuse is the most prevalent form of intimate partner violence. Half of Americans have experienced emotional abuse by a partner in their lifetime. And that most victims of psychological abuse do not know they are experiencing abuse. So those statistics, every time I read them, I just, uh, I, I know this, but every time I say it aloud, there's just a sinking feeling in the pit of my stomach. It's just, it's a hard thing, y'all. It's just a hard, hard thing. Nevertheless, as a church counselor, I want to make sure that we understand that psychological abuse is abuse. It is abuse. Neil reports, and I quote, for victims of psychological abuse, the term abuse may be hard to accept if physical violence is not occurring. And again, I have seen this numerous times and it never ceases to break my heart when these individuals do not recognize psychological abuse to be indeed abuse, especially if it has not become violent. And so I have used that word abuse. I will call it by its rightful name. I will say this is abuse. This is an abusive relationship. And of course, I've had clients to recall when they hear that. Um, some will say, no, no, it's not abuse. Um, some will just sit there and maybe not ever return back for counseling, which I understand. I understand that it is hard to hear. I understand that it is hard to accept. I also understand due to the neurobiology that sometimes is still not quite yet registering in that pre frontal cortex part of our brains. So I understand all of that. I also understand that the survival instinct will kick in, that response, that fight or flight. And some clients just go into flight and they leave and they will not return. Or when they do, they are still trying to digest this relationship to be abusive. So it is a delicate approach that has to be implemented for sure. Some really are not ready to hear that word, but I don't ever agree with them and say, yeah, you're right. It's not abuse. I will not do that. We have to name it for what it is. However, I might use a word that's a, a bit more um, well, digestible again, and say something like, okay, sounds like bullying. It sounds like gaslighting. However, it is still abuse. It's indicative of abuse. But sometimes I might just use the words that they can um, kind of, kind of um, relate to. It resonates and they'll kind of listen a little bit more. And again, I know um, what abuse does, we know what it does to us neurobiology, um, biologically speaking. And therefore, I, I can understand that for some people, again, it is just the brain is having to kind of catch up and trying to integrate the information to fully accept it. So it's, it's not anything personal in some situations. I do understand that it is just hard. 
It's hard to accept. It's hard to call what they have been enduring abuse, especially when it has not become violent. And again, that is one of those um, relational dynamics within a psychologically abusive relationship that also makes it hard for a person to leave. So today, what I want to do is I just want to focus on um, some of the relational dynamics that are present in a psychologically abusive relationship. I, I Well, really, it's kind of one point, I guess, and I'm just going to kind of elaborate on it. I don't know. <laughs> I guess I'm trying to help make it make sense in our brains. Is it one point? Is it two points? Is it three points? Well, I'm just going to talk about kind of an overview of the interaction, some of these relational dynamics that are found in this very toxic form of relationship. So let me begin by saying abuse is not usually obvious at first. And that's how um, it creeps up on us because we don't realize what's happening. It's just very gradual. It's not obvious whatsoever, because if it started off being so very obvious, most people probably would say, oh, no, I'm not dealing with this. You know, I'm not going to put up with this. They would find ways to exit the relationship. So it has to be um, very subtle in the beginning. And then it just gradually escalates over time. So we have to keep in mind that perpetrators of abuse are very, 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 very manipulative. Did I say that they are very manipulative? And they're also charismatic. And so perpetrators have this ability to isolate their victims from their family, from their friends. And again, this is due to their manipulative and charismatic nature. See, and they have to create a situation that is going to make it difficult for the victims to leave. Like, you know, let's start a family together. So they're, they're sharing children. They have probably begun to mix their finances. Usually perpetrators of abuse have begun, as I said just a minute ago, to start criticizing their family and their friends. They are isolating the victim. They're putting them in a position where they are more likely to tolerate the toxicity of the relationship because they now have to begin thinking, I got to make this work. Like I have severed relationships with my family and my friends for this person. And therefore I have to make it work. And so this begins to keep them embedded like deeper and deeper into this relationship because they're thinking I have nowhere to go and I have nowhere to turn. So this pattern of abuse begins and, and how it looks, we call it like the cycle of abuse. And so what usually happens is that we have this activating event, something that triggers the abuse to occur. So something happens, the perpetrator gets, you know, indignant, upset, explosive, critical, um, gaslighting, all of the things. So the abuse occurs. Then it is usually followed by this honeymoon phase that we sometimes term it. And what happens during this 
honeymoon phase is that um, the abuser will appear to be very remorseful, very apologetic, and they may give gifts. And sometimes those gifts may be something that the victim has always wanted, which then makes the victim feel all, you know, warm and fuzzy on the inside, feeling compassionate. And these good feelings now are churning within them toward this abuser. And now they become hopeful that the relationship is on the mend and it will be as good as it was in the beginning. So, you know, they kind of settle back in like, oh, he or she has, has given me this gift. And, you know, maybe now we're going to be on the right road. But what usually also happens during this honeymoon phase is that the perpetrator will usually blame the victim. The perpetrator might minimize what happened or deny it, saying things like, you're just too sensitive. You know I wouldn't do that. You know that is not what I meant. Or something along the lines of, that's how your mom and dad feel about me. I didn't think that would be you also. These are some of the examples of things that can be said during this honeymoon phase. So then we move on from the honeymoon phase and then we go to this period that we kind of call the, the calm, <laughs> you know, where things are, quote unquote, supposedly normal and promises are going to be made. And they both talk about how good the relationship is and see if we can just keep it like this. We can conquer the world and they'll act as if nothing has happened until the next stage happens, which is what we kind of refer to as a tension building stage. And this is where the perpetrator becomes angry about something. And the victim tries to manage the perpetrator's feelings and, he, and will attempt to try to keep this person calm. They feel as though they are walking on eggshells either until the abuse occurs or the honeymoon stage will roll back around. So yeah, they see the anger and think, oh no, here we go again. Um, this is a time where a lot of internalization happens, where the victim blames oneself. And that's usually because also the perpetrator is blaming. But now this internalizing has begun to happen where the victim is thinking, what did I do? What did I say? I shouldn't do that again. I shouldn't say that again. You know, I'm the problem. And they begin to internalize this as though it is their fault. And it's a vicious cycle. It's a vicious cycle. It is what the cycle of abuse is. So after that, then there comes the honeymoon phase again. And the perpetrator may say things like, you know, see, if you didn't make me that angry, you didn't say that, if you didn't do that, if you would have just answered me, if you would have just given me the money, if you would have not talked to your parents about this, just whatever the case may be. You know, we're back in this honeymoon phase. And the cycle starts all over again. Vicious. It's a cycle because it keeps going round and round and round until someone disrupts it and decides no more. This is what it can look like in psychologically abusive relationships. And yes, 
even for those who are in the church. Remember those statistics. You have quite a few people in your congregations that are in psychologically abusive relationships. And so my prayer is that someone might recognize themselves and might recognize like, hey, these are the dynamics of my relationship. I'm hopeful that they have hope now that they have these words that they can articulate these interactions and these experiences between them and their partner. And they can recognize this to be a psychologically abusive relationship and call it by its name. Once they can call it by its name, they can turn to someone to say, I am in a psychologically abusive relationship and I am seeking counsel. I need to I need to know how to walk away. I need to find refuge. I need to trust. I need to find someone that I can trust. They need hope. They need to be able to experience God as that refuge, as that strength, as a present help. And so what does it mean for the church to be a refuge? I think we have to ask of God how to be trustworthy for certain individuals and yet wise. How to extend the hope that is that is Jesus and that is found in him. To ask of God how to draw near to be a stabilizing and a corrective emotional experience for someone who is a victim of psychological abuse. I believe that this is what it means for the church to be a refuge for those who are victims of psychological abuse. You have heard my call to be an educational refuge, to be a place of hope, to be a place of safety, to be a very present help. What will be your response? And the church said, 